0: You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Would we'll you turn to Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30? Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. We are just, this is a passage of scripture that I've been reading over the past year. Very often, it's been something that's been going through my heart. I don't think I've specifically preached on it. I've mentioned it in sermons here and there and it's a passage you're well familiar with if you grew up in the church. If you're not and you're not familiar with, I hope this passage speaks to you as well because it's something that is very simple and yet Profound. I find it uh, a passage that's encouraging, as Ben was mentioning. In this passage, we find the goodness of God, and we find it in that it, His heart is good to us, and it is something that we can find rest in. And I I know that there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I've just we've talked about it. Ben has just experienced loss. There's so many of you who have experienced loss. I feel as a pastor, as I mentioned last week, I've gone from kind of crisis mode to crisis mode. Uh, the last couple of weeks here, in people's lives, um, and there's many who are just gone through loss and experiencing. A, um, I have the honor of participating in a burial tomorrow. There's a, a variety of things just going on. That you know what? It, it's there. Are people are, are real things. As Ben was saying, there's real trials and, and hardships going on. And so I, I'm praying that this passage, and this message today, really ministers to you because I feel as if. This passage was something I've been wanting to preach on now for a while, and it just lined up that it happened for today. So I I think it's for someone today. If not, I already know it's for me. (laughs) So uh, I'm praying that uh, it means something to you today in this passage as we really examine the heart of Christ. So let me read it, Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. This is Jesus speaking as he's declared. Uh, many things he's been teaching, and he uh, then comes into really, even after a really hard and rough passage here earlier, as he declares some kind of hardship upon some unrepentant cities, you can see earlier in the passage. He then comes in where we kind of peel back the layers and we see who he is. Verse 28 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29 Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Last week, we were focusing on the Hebrew word tov, or tov, and uh, we focused on that word which means good, God's goodness. As we said, and as we sang today about God's goodness in It's a simple thing, and yet it affects so much. And we talked about having a a church that that, uh, builds or fosters or cultivates a culture of goodness. And that is our aim, and that is our goal in so many different factors and different spheres, that the church culture here, the people here, the leadership, all of us, we are pursuing, as many are saying, this holiness, this goodness that resists evil, And resists what is wrong. And this is our aim to foster an environment that that, that has this goodness growing from it. From God himself. A good that repels the bad. A, A culture which seeks not to overcome evil with evil, as we said, but to overcome evil with good, as it says. Good is, is this word, it's so simple, it's so easy, is life is good, what is that? God is good, and we say that, and it's so important because it's true. But good is more than just being nice, or, or just a nice concept. It is, it is God in that he is good, that he is the embodiment of all that is good. Everything you know to be good or right comes from God. We are a people then, in turn, as we have uh, received the, uh, the, the goodness of God, we then seek to dispense the goodness of God through good works, as we are a people devoted to good works, as Titus taught us last week. Uh, Not a a word that we should be afraid of necessarily in the Protestant cultures as we're afraid of this word good works as we're not working our way to heaven by our good works, but because God has saved us and redeemed us and made us new creations now, we are zealous for good works and we are, as Titus says, devoted to good works. And this is so important for this really gives us an aim or a purpose or a reason for coming together, a reason for the church to exist, a reason for the people of God that is summarized so easily in this word tov, or this um, Tove, and I think somebody came up to me after the sermon, and they were trying to make up a new phrase, and they were like, that's totally Tove, man. That sermon was totally Tove." okay? So maybe that's a new phrase you can use. Yeah, you know, that's a, I don't think it'll really catch on, but maybe, um, you know, but uh, this totally Tove. okay? It's just like, it's so good. It's just totally good. That is all good, right? And, uh. Uh, Others uh, mention that concept of how summarizing, I guess you could say, that word is for what life is meant to be about and what we desire. And when Tov is not there, we know what it feels like. And we long for one day the Lord to return and make all things good again. And and so today, I want us to then look at where we find this tov. In a sense, like, we can talk about God's goodness and it comes from God, but then where do we see it being worked out? And how do we really learn what tov looks like? And I think when we look at Jesus, we see the total embodiment of tov. I want to go a little deeper into this through this verse. I want to look at the core of goodness really where I think what that looks like and how it's reflected and how we experience it comes from Jesus' heart. When we examine who he is at his core, we begin to have our eyes open to see what goodness is like and then that goodness works within us. So uh, a few weeks ago too, we talked about this idea of our eyes of our heart are being enlightened. This is from uh, Ephesians three, this, uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, Ephesians three says, through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of his love and to know the love of Christ, to know it, that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this idea this, uh, to know the love of God. What does that mean and to see, what does that look like? To know Jesus' heart, we then learn to know what love really looks like, what love really is in its purest form. And then that pure form of love and goodness as Christ says in this passage in Ephesians 3 as Paul is writing to us that Christ may dwell in our hearts. What does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart? What difference does that make? How do people experience the true living Christ that lives within us? How is it that people experience that and receive that? What does that mean? So these are all questions that I'm hoping to kind of dive into a little bit today that the heart, the center, the core, is so important. We sang earlier, be the center. It is that important organ, the core of our being. It is kind of all of which we are. And when we see Jesus at his heart, we see him for who he truly is. It's almost in like a relationship. We talk about relationship a lot here uh, as we know that true uh, faith in Jesus is is really at its core a relationship and and when you are in a relationship, you learn to know someone. You grow in that relationship, right? There's a time of, of learning who they are and we'll even say phrases like, you know, we got to know, I got to really see his heart in it. We'll say that. What does that mean, to know their heart? Where I began to see, yes, the outside of the person, what they look like, their mannerisms, their actions, but I began to experience their true heart. I'm getting to know them deeply. Do we know Jesus like this? Do we know deeply, at his heart, at the core? What's the core of the good news, the core of the gospel, at the center? What is the heart of Jesus? What is his heart, and what does that look like? Where is he motivated out of, and then how do those actions reflect his true core, his true heart? You can think of it in a, maybe a way that might help us as we take these big big objects, these big ideas, and as we try to get down to the boil it down you would, or maybe uh, maybe those old, old commercials. Uh, how many licks does it take to the get to the center of a Tootsie Pop, right? What is the, the owl? says, the, wor- the world may never know, right? I mean, some of you are too young uh, to even hear of those commercials, you know? Uh, but how many licks does it take to the center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. And I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I actually looked it up. Uh, (laughs) and it takes uh, science science and we all trust science and all things right but science says uh, joking science says that uh, they did a scientific experiment and it takes around roughly uh, about 2,500 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop so just take that little nugget of worthless information store it away use it in a conversation later I do it all the time and my my wife gets frustrated with me But speaking of my wife and marriage, uh, we're going to move on this idea in a marriage. Right? As we look into a marriage, you begin, you you start off in a marriage, and yet as you get down to the center, you get to learn who somebody is and know, and you're 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 finding that center. That what is at the center of that tootsie pop, right? What's at the center of that person you're married to and in that relationship? What really makes them tick? And thankfully, when we get to the center of a tootsie pop, it's a sweet tootsie center, right? And we're thankful for that, not a, you know, a worm or a gross bug at the middle or poison or something. But we know that, that as we get into the center and the core of Jesus, we find that as we learn to know him, as we learn to peel back all the layers and as we develop in relationship with the God of creation and Jesus Christ, as we peel back those layers, we begin to see him for who he really is, that there is no bad, there is no ugly, there is only good. We get to know not the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we get to know the good, the good, and the good (laughs) of Jesus. There's more good the deeper we go. You'll never uncover this skeleton in the closet. His heart is good. It is who he is. His goodness is exercised towards us through his love and his loving kindness, the Bible says, and his mercy that he pours out on us and his grace. God's love ultimately is an exercise or an outworking of his goodness. We experience God's goodness most often through his love. God is good. Jesus is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, God in human form, taking on the form of a servant, veiled in flesh deity. The Bible says we see the glory of God in all of his goodness. We see it through the face of Jesus Christ. When you get to know Jesus, you begin to see God. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks into this. It says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it is in a relationship with Jesus, it is by seeing him face to face, it is beginning to know what he is like, what he is truly, for who he is truly, is then we begin to see the glory of God and that light that shines into our dark hearts as Jesus comes in and makes us new. The glory of God, we see, yes, this glory that is has seen so often in the Old Testament in big and bombastic ways. Ways in which we experience the glory of God is so fearful as we see this fear and awe, the glory of God upon Mount Sinai, this smoldering mountain burning in fire The glory of God in a burning bush causing Moses to fall down on his knees and avert his gaze. The glory of God in the sheer perfect holiness that strikes men dead when simply coming to physical contact with the Ark of the Covenant. This great and mighty and powerful God but yet the glimpse of his glory and who he is is seen in the story with Elijah where it is not in the hurricane or the tornado or the wind or the fire but in a still small voice. For God is holy, powerful. He will judge and punish sin. This you can be sure. And we here at Hope Fellowship Church, we don't make an effort to apologize for God's holiness or the justice of God. He will judge wrongdoing and punish evil and purge it from the earth upon his return when he renovates and redeems the earth and creates in its stead a new heaven and a new earth free from sin. But is this what draws us in? and keeps us coming to church every Sunday. Are we a people motivated out of fear? No. <laughs> Are we a people, yes, in awe? As the Bible says, to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. But as we learn to, to fear in awe of who God is, we also begin to see who he is at his core, and the love of God which keeps us coming back. It is, it is this idea that draws us continually in, There is a repentance and a sorrow over sin that a sinner cannot come to salvation apart from that and yet what holds us together is his gentleness, is his kindness, it is his grace that keeps us and holds us still. Through the trials and the tribulations, through the suffering, through the hardship, it is not the fear that continually reminds us of his goodness but rather his love it is the heart of God that keeps us close and holds us near and dear to him. His loving kindness, his mercy, his grace, his goodness exercise towards us in his love. This is his core. The heart of God is love. And seen most vividly, we see it here in the heart of Christ. As we see the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him, it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness. And so what is the heart of Christ as we see it in this passage? I've read about a year ago a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland that works out some of the ideas today that I've been mulling over and meditating on for months now and thinking about and has helped encourage me. But in that book, um, Dane Ortlund writes, he says, my dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him and I point out to you. He says, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there is one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. We learn much of Jesus from the gospels and his teacher and his teachings, his birth, his ministry, his purpose, The fulfillment of the Old Testament, the sacrifice, the cross, and the resurrection in his actions. But one place in particular, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up to us about his very heart? And he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The heart of Christ. We learn that Jesus' heart in particular given by Jesus himself as he tells you what his heart is like at its core. He does not say that my heart is demanding. He does not say that his heart is cold or judgmental or lofty and far off or even happy or joyful as many of those things is what he is but what is his heart at his core? He says he is gentle and lowly Maybe not the thing that we were expecting. Maybe not the thing that you were thinking, that's how I would describe God. How would I describe God's heart if I had asked you before, what is Jesus? What is his heart? What's at his core? What is it that drives him? What is it? I don't know if we would immediately go to that concept that he is gentle and lowly. I don't know for you that's something that maybe I don't always run to or think about as much. And he points out to us that the heart really is crucially the center of who we are. Proverbs 4.23 speaks to this idea that that Solomon teaches us, right? That, 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 That we're to keep the heart. Keep the heart with all diligence or vigilance. For out of it flows what? The springs of life. Many of you know. Out of the heart flows the springs of life. And so from the heart springs the matters of life. Heart drives us. It is, you know, kind of who we are, right? Jesus' is heart, at this core. Imagine you begin to peel back the layers as we were talking about the Tootsie Pop and you find at the center, what is at that center? Is it a jalapeno? <laughs> is it, a, have you literally seen those? I mentioned it earlier, but those those lollipops. I think my kid bought or had one the other day at something that he got one. Uh, I think it was Charlie had one at a birthday party or something. And it was one of those uh, lollipops, and inside of it is like a worm. <laughs> Have you seen those? And they, I've actually seen them in other places where you get those honey pops, and in the in the center is a is a real scorpion. You know, and so apparently it's edible. Uh, it's just kind of gross. Right? So, but is that kind of what we expect from Jesus? Like he's good generally on the outside, but then when we get to really see him, we find the scorpion center. <laughs> Maybe sometimes we can become that way, and I think that's what Ben was saying earlier. We can become this, almost this cynical kind of sense that we're almost expecting God to not be good. Like it's for those things that we need him to get out of a hard time, but we expect, we just expect not in faith that he is good, but we almost expect cynically that that the things are gonna not work out. And that's just God almost enjoys the evil of this world. And, and I think some, we can allow those roots of bitterness to get within us and we forget that at Jesus' heart he is gentle and lowly and that is, that is a place that you can find rest for your soul. This is why I think we need the heart of Christ to fill us because if I peel back the layers of my life you know, like, we're all like onions, right? We peel back the layers. If we all peel back my la- if I peel back my layers, you see the crevices of my life. Is, is it something that you see gentle and lowly? If I were to peel back the layers of your life and I start really getting into the crevices of your heart, your desires, the thoughts, and the deep recesses of your mind, what would I find? Would we find the core of Jesus or would we find so many things that we would be ashamed to even talk about. What kind of heart would we see? How, how is it that the Jesus then comes within us? Because we know that the human heart, as Jeremiah 17 says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked, who knows how bad it is? NLT says, pretty, pretty powerful. Who knows how bad it is? And yet, it is that Jesus has come to restore this heart, redeem it, and make it new, and alive, and full of himself his heart is gentle and lowly. We look at that word gentleness. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. I am gentle in heart what is the word gentle it's maybe not something uh we as really obviously big strong men think of you know being all the time I like I want today I'm going to be gentle you know I don't know if we think of that as something is that a quality that we aspire to you know and sometimes maybe we think that's something that uh for weaklings they are gentle and men are strong or so I don't know maybe that's just my guy perspective on this verse but the word gentle could also be uh translated meek Meek, maybe that's a better way of thinking about it. I am gentle or I am meek, what is the word meek? Not a word maybe we use all the time. I was talking to this about this word with another friend of mine the other day, speaking about meekness, what is it? meekness? We're talking about the idea of meekness does carry with it sometimes this idea of self-control, quiet strength, strength uh, uh, under control. Kind of like you're driving a car you're handed keys to a a car with a an engine that is very strong and powerful and you can drive that car with control or you can drive it out of control no one's denying the power that that car or truck has it's very powerful but to drive that very powerful thing in control is in a sense of what it means to be meek to be strong to be powerful To be uh, influential, to have strength, but to have it under control. To have strength and yet to hold a baby, an infant child, with tenderness and gentleness. That is more of what it means to be strong than just being out of control and damaging all who come in contact with you. So meekness, self-control, power, quiet strength, they're kind of found in this word gentleness here. A personality trait, in fact, one definition, I literally looked it up, it said a personality trait of gentleness and humility. (laughs) And that's exactly what we're seeing here in this word, gentleness and lowliness, which is the opposite of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. Meekness does not refer to weakness or passivity, but controlled power. Aristotle described it as the middle position between excessive anger and excessive lack of anger or apathy. Uh, Psalm eighteen twenty five, your gentleness made me great. Uh, Proverbs sixteen nineteen, it is better to be of a lowly gentle spirit than uh, with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. The Beatitudes is a place we often see this most often in Matthew five five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A quality that we don't always maybe consider as powerful, but when it is not present, it is very evident. And Jesus, we see him in his actions that he is tender hearted and kind. Let the children come to me. He's gentle with the children. He is kind to the widows. He is uh, seeking out and loving the oppressed and the poor and the needy. For Jesus himself, when he says of why he has come, he gets up into the temple and he reads the scroll of Isaiah, does he not? Do you know the passage? He reads from Isaiah 61 and what does he declare uh, that he is anointed by God to do what? What has he come? Why? What passage would Jesus read about himself and his mission and who he is and why he has come to earth? What passage would he read? What best describes him? Well, he reads from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, Jesus, to preach the good news to the, to the poor. He sent me to bind up brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our Lord's vengeance to comfort all those who mourn. Wow. You can see this level of compassion and empathy to those of you who feel as if you are that. (laughs) You are in need. Jesus is near to you in that place. This gentle love those who are in desperate need, the heart of Jesus comes. The author, uh, Dane Ortland, adds the simple statement in regards to gentleness that Jesus' gentleness reminds us that Jesus is not trigger happy. This is a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but I think it's helpful. He's not trigger happy. He's not just there waiting to strike you as we often think of God just waiting to strike us, looking to uh, cause mayhem. That's what he enjoys. That is not who he is interior, right? He does not delight in judgment and wrath. He, the Bible says he is long-suffering, or you could even think of it in the Hebrew context. He is long-nosed, long-winded, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. John three sixteen. the verse after it says, John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is part of his gentleness. His heart of patience and kindness towards mankind. He is gentle, the Bible says here in Matthew 11, but he is also lowly, and it is similar to gentleness. It's a similar word, it has different aspects to it. This word of being humble is what it really kind of means, this lowliness, this humility. Uh, We see it worked out in Jesus' Zechariah passage when he fulfills it on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9, 9, behold your king, your king coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And how does he come? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Lowly of heart. Humble he comes. And his humility is expressly seen in his demonstration of the greatest acts of humility. Of laying down his life for his friends. Uh, Jesus has come uh, to glorify the Father by giving himself for mankind. We see this given to us in Philippians Philippians 2, a well-known passage. I feel as if I read it often in relation to humility, in relation to why Jesus has come. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, if there is any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of cord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish pride, ambition, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look at your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves or your heart, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a lowly servant, being born in the likeness of a lowly man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that now, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of the father this is the beautiful display of the humility or you would say the humiliation of jesus and the exaltation that has after the resurrection he humbled himself took on the form of the servant and he demonstrated that in john 13 when he said he loved his own and he went around the table and he washed the feet of the disciples (laughs) even judas's feet he chose to wash It is in this heart of gentleness and humility that resonates most clearly with us who are in so desperate need as we see ourselves in need of a loving savior. This is why this heart resonates with people like Zacchaeus who see themselves apart from Christ. They see themselves a sinner, hated, ostracized, and a traitor, and yet he is the one who has become a friend of sinners. He has become for those like Zacchaeus, those who are in desperate need. He has come to seek and save the lost. That is you and me, and it's a wonderful place to be. For Jesus' heart is gentle, it is lowly. We also see from Matthew 11 in that passage in Zacchaeus that Jesus is a friendly, or he is friendly to sinners. His heart is friendly. It might sound like a simplistic word, but, but look back with me in Matthew 11. If you look at Matthew 11, verse 19. We were reading in verses 28 through 30, but in, in verse 19, it speaks to some of this concept that in verse 18 and 19, it, it talks about that, that John came neither eating nor drinking, saying he has a demon, but yet the verse 19, the son of man, or Jesus, came eating and drinking that they say, look at him. This is Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. Look at that guy, Jesus, as everybody points the finger and wags a finger at him, a glutton and a drunkard. He's what? A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors would be a, synonymous with the word traitors. The worst kind of the worst that you can imagine. The worst of the worst. He's friends with people like that. Imagine that. He's friend with, with sinners. This accusation by the outsiders is almost ironic. <laughs> it's almost exactly what we want because that means Jesus can be my friend. Thank God he's my friend. James two twenty three. and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Friendly. His heart is for you. His heart is friendly towards us yet his heart pursues us he, his heart is for us and that is almost challenging to recognize. It is because of the loving kindness of God that we find mercy and that his friendliness saves us and calls us his friend. It is in our very heart that we find rest for our weary souls in this place. That we can fall at this heart that is not judgmentally casting us aside but welcoming us to his table. Our weary, sin-sick souls find rest. We find that shalom, that peace. We find tov, the goodness of God. We find it present within a relationship with Jesus, in a place of rest. We leave behind our worries, our sin, our idols. The rest is found within his embrace, the tender, gentle, kind embrace of Jesus Christ for it is in his presence that we find the heart is totally tov, it is all good. It is beautiful, it is attractive. It welcomes us in this attractive quality of his goodness and love. It does not repel us, but befriends us. That is so much, it repels us, it befriends me, it wants me. We sang it earlier, you don't need me. But you want me? That he is our friend. And we are not rejected, but we are received. And we are adopted. And we are given a blessed inheritance. Oh God, that is amazing grace. I don't I don't deserve that. But thank God that He has given us the grace of God. That Jesus is a friend of sinners, a friend of Jordan. <laughs> a friend. My friend, as Ben was mentioning earlier, if he's not your friend, if you don't know him, if you don't have a relationship with the powerful, all-saving God of creation seen in the face of Jesus Christ, I wanna ask you, is today the day where you get to know him? (laughs) Is today the day where you want to open a relationship with Jesus Christ? And maybe he's been speaking to you, he's been pressing this on your heart for a while now. And you haven't, you haven't really trusted him to know if this would be a good decision. You're afraid of what all that faith uh, might bring into your life. It's a challenging movement, a, a challenging choice. But I challenge you to, that when you step into that relationship, you will only find more and more goodness. There is a never-ending stream of living water flowing from his side. Lost sinner, we we find ourselves found in Jesus Christ. You come home and you find rest. Your soul has been passing, it has been looking, it has been searching, but we are finding that we all long for goodness and wholeness and it is found in the heart of Christ. It is found there that our weary souls will find rest in his gentle and lowly heart. He befriends us, he pursues us, that his friendship doesn't end there, but that he has been pursuing us all along, like in Luke 15, where a man who had a 100 sheep, in fact, in the context of Luke 15, it it comes about through the accusation that in Luke's account, Jesus is a friend of sinners, he's a friend of tax collectors, so in response to that accusation, he tells them a story that a shepherd, a man, had a 100 sheep. One was lost. One was lost and he left the 99 to pursue the one. His gentle and lowly heart cared for that one lost sheep. And when he found that sheep, he brought it back and he rejoiced. And he celebrated for the one has returned. He pursues you. He will save you. He loves the sheep. He, the Bible says, is the good shepherd. And we, as the sheep, know his voice. It is a gentle is a lowly tone of voice. It is one full of love, compassion, and he shows us an extraordinary amount of patience, does he not? (laughs) And I began to study this concept and think through this thing as it relates to so many other passages that we don't have time to go into, and I began to be a little bit convicted for I thought about my own self as a parent. You ever find that the most convicting thing you ever do is being a parent, and for those of you who aren't one yet, you probably have a parent, you know? (laughs) And it's one of those things that I find myself as I look at the heart of Jesus Christ, as I think about the core heart of Jesus Christ, gentle and lowly, patient, kind and humble and meek. Is that what my children see in me? And This is why I need his heart to transform mine. I see so often in my own life, not a tone of gentleness and lowliness and patience, but of irritability, frustration, quick-temperedness, and demand, demanding tone, especially when speaking with my children, who now I have three under the age of five. It's a very sanctifying time of life. Parents, how do we treat our children? How do we speak to them? And Do they, through the body of our leadership, and I'm not asking you, are you... Parents, are you perfect? Have you never made or spoken up to your children? No, I'm I'm saying through the body of your leadership and example to them, what do they know you as a whole? What would they say your core heart and longing is for them? For children are quick to forgive. They are resilient, yes. But what do they see you as a whole? Do they see your heart being the heart of Christ, the love of Christ that comes out for them? the treatment that you show them, the kindness and the loving mercy that you give them. For it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I think as I close this Concept has become uh, more powerful for me recently, and this idea has become more real for me that I examine the heart of Jesus and I want and desire that heart for my own. Uh, the book and another area I, I found this message uh, by Jonathan Edwards, he preached a message in 1740, a long time ago, uh, to the children in his congregation. I used to, and not so much now, but we're trying to do that again. I got to, I used to be able to speak little short messages to the kids. We'd have all the kids come up front. We'll have to do that again sometime soon. But Jonathan Edwards preached a message called To the Children in 1740, where he impressed upon them the importance of loving the heart of Jesus over all things in this world. Seeing and loving that Jesus, there is no love greater than his. And here's a quote from his sermon, Jonathan Edwards preached. He says, There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is the one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those who are suffering and sorrowful in their circumstances, one that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and the grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in this world, like the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness towards their children, but that is no kindness like Jesus's. I want my children, my, my kids, my the people I love to see that heart. And as Ortland goes on to describe this, he says, as parents, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is a shadow of a greater love. To put a sharper edge on it, it is to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. For they will often forget the things we say, <laughs> whether that's good or bad. But do they see the heart of Christ in your heart for them. Everything, as Edwards says, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in any man on this earth is in Jesus. For he is a man as well as God. He is the holiest, the meekest, the most humble, and in every way the most excellent man that ever there was. (laughs) The heart of Jesus is beautiful. It is lovely. For the steadfast love is better than life. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. And if we want to be a good church, a church that embodies Tove, seeking to embody that in all that we do, in our church culture and in our families and our marriages and our, in our relationships and in our parenting of our youngest, If we're seeking to embody that and cultivate this culture of goodness that resists the evil, we ought to have a true, keen understanding of the heart of Jesus Christ, which is the core of the gospel. So that by knowing his heart, we get to know the goodness of God and see the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. That his heart is gentle. It is kind. It is lowly. It is love that is the place that I find rest. (laughs) For my heart can be like a storm-tossed ship at times, is it not? But can we as the people of God celebrate God's goodness by finding rest for our weary souls in the heart of Jesus Christ? Let's close in prayer before we come to the table. Father, we thank you and we praise you today. We ask God that you would Continually teach us so much of the truths that we have preached about today that you are good, that you are love, that your grace has been poured out to us. Yes, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And that is what we preach, that is what we believe, and that is what we live in and walk in today as we walk in your spirit. And so today, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified, especially in our time to come. This simple moment where we come around your table and we partake of the elements of communion. And we just simply join physically together as a family that has been saved by a beautiful, loving, pursuing, and kind and gentle heart. Thank you, God, for coming and rescuing us and making us your friends. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we praise you for it. And we're going to lift you up today. And we're going to walk out of this place with a smile on our face because of what you've done. And God, I ask that this would be a comfort to those looking for rest, looking for peace We'd find it in your heart, Lord. Please bring us to that place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.